0: This is a giant experiment that I think never would have happened had, or maybe it would have happened 10 years from now, had COVID not hit.
1: There are very few truly end-to-end mental health systems that you can get care from real people at all different levels of acuity via an online or virtual capacity.
2: People of OCD have these intrusive thoughts, and most of them are harm-related, so the, the cohort of the harm-intrusive thoughts that is particularly challenging in this circumstance is the cohort that has the contamination fears of your, what if I contract COVID-19 myself and get very sick, or the harm fears of what if I spread COVID-19 to an at loved one and potentially make them very sick.
3: This is Tech Hunts, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. For 20 years, advocates of telemedicine have been trying to break through to common
4: usage. For all of modern history, those with mental health challenges have held back from seeking treatment due to the stigma associated with doing so. And then a Chinese bat opened the floodgates. Today we are seeing record use of telemedicine, especially for mental health needs of all types.
3: This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz,
4: And I'm Lisa Soonan, and today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategy consulting and policy practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports a full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So today, regular listeners who know our usual approach, we're taking a different one. Uh, Normally we do in-depth personal interviews with individuals, but today in light of current events, we decided to take a topical detour into how the coronavirus pandemic has driven vast advances in the use of telemedicine and has brought out into the open the importance of access to mental health treatment. The combination of these things into telebehavioral health is our topic today, and we have three people here to discuss it with us. Russ Glass, CEO of Ginger, Margaret Laws, who started Nod, and Steve Smith, CEO of NOCD. We chose those three because they're experiencing skyrocketing use of their telebehavioral health products, but are also addressing very different populations. Welcome, each of you, to the show.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you.
4: Thanks for having us. It's good to see you guys or hear you guys. I can actually see you through Zoom, too. You're all looking lovely. So let's just start with Margaret. Can you tell us something about yourself? Not just where you work, but what drove you to do what you do today? Why is it? Why are you passionate about it? And what was the motivation or spark that led you to this particular company or idea?
0: Well, I have uh, now been at Hope Lab for about five years, but for the few decades before that, have been involved in um, the social pieces of healthcare and of, of ways of integrating health for lower income populations and integrating health and other social needs. One of the things that drove me to think about moving in that direction was really seeing this incredible potential of innovation. I had done a lot of work in healthcare technology and the incredible needs in the healthcare safety net and among underserved populations. And so a lot of my career has really been focused, at least over this past decade or so, in trying to bring innovations in healthcare services and technology to underserved populations of all kinds. I've been at Hope Lab now for about five years, as I said, and there our work focuses on developing digital tools and interventions to help improve the health and well-being of young people. And we do that by co-creating with young people and by bringing together behavioral science, design, and tech. So for me, you know, Hope Lab is in a way a convergence of a lot of passions of mine, of working with underserved populations, of really trying to bring tech to where it can do the most good to help improve health and health outcomes and to co-create to actually work um, using human-centered design and with populations that we're trying to help solve for. So uh, at Hope Lab, the past year, we built an intervention called Nod focused on trying to Go upstream of the depression, anxiety, and suicide that we're seeing skyrocketing among young people, and really try to attack one of the root causes of that, which is loneliness and isolation. In Building Nod, we've built an intervention that now takes the form of an app, which we released recently, that really is trying to help teach mindsets, beliefs, and behaviors that can help young people build stronger mental well being, combat loneliness, and ultimately, suffer from less anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation and suicide attempts.
4: Steve, you wanna give us an update on on you
2: and how you, sure. you came to NoCD? So thanks again for having me. Uh, my name is Stephen Smith. I'm the founder and CEO of NoCD. I founded the company after a personal experience um, suffering with obsessive compulsive disorder, a very severe, prevalent, and misunderstood mental health condition where um, I was a former college football player. The condition um, onset after my sophomore year when I was kind of training for my junior season. you know, in a span of six months, it took me from being the starting quarterback at my university down to rock bottom and housebound, where then I developed severe depression and was in a really challenging space. And I was in that place because I was misdiagnosed five times. And that's typical for people with OCD. And so one day at rock bottom was searching my symptoms, saw that there were other people out there going through the same thing as me. And they described what they were going through as obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was like, huh? I thought that was just a personality quirk. I had no idea it was so severe. So I went to find um, treatment for OCD. That was my next step. And I saw that there was exposure response prevention, the gold standard for OCD. I ended up you know, having to jump through many hoops to get that treatment, cost hoops. I had to wait on a seven-month wait list, et cetera. In, in short, got better. got back on my feet, went back to school, finished up my degree in football career. And I was reflecting back, thinking, you know, there's one in 40 people suffering with this condition It's extremely severe when untreated, but also it's very treatable, right? It's just a matter of accessing that right care, you know? So it's not a clinical issue, it's an operations issue. And so kind of with that problem, is like, well, what if you could use technology to, to solve it with that vision created in cd? And today we're growing very quickly and we're fortunate enough to serve people all across the country and help them get better and stay better.
1: Thanks, Steve. Russ, yeah. your turn. Uh, thanks. I appreciate you having me. I love NoCD, by the way, as a name. It is a great I name. I think that's tremendous. Oh, thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you.
4: And it's only one letter off from Nod, So you're going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> <try it. laughs> uh, no, really good one. So, so yeah,
1: I'm a multiple time entrepreneur, but have never been in healthcare before Ginger. And I was fortunate enough to have a great, um, a great outcome in my last company, Bizzo, which we sold to LinkedIn. And I ran the marketing solutions business at LinkedIn for three years and then left just to be dad and um, spend time with my, Three daughters. I have a five-year-old, a nine-year-old, an eleven-year-old. My wife is in the healthcare space and, and has a, a great career that you know spans her, her entire career in healthcare. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I realized that you know starting companies for the sake of uh, shareholder value or, or or just to solve uh, problems wasn't that interesting anymore. And I really wanted to think about what needed to exist in the world. And as I was going through that process, I came across Ginger. And Ginger is an on-demand mental health system that I looked at as like a diamond in the rough. I saw that they were solving a problem that has such a massive supply-demand imbalance as part of it. There are so many people in the world, about 20% of the population, that has some sort of diagnosed mental health condition, and yet the vast majority of them, 60 to 70%, depending on where you are, aren't getting care for those conditions. And the societal impact of that, the enterprise impact of that, and then the personal impact to families and friends is, is staggering. And so when I looked at the, the curves, the, the number of people going into this space, the number of providers is shrinking, the number of people retiring is increasing, and the number of people with suicidality and anxiety and depression, as Margaret mentioned, uh, is, is skyrocketing right now. I realized that this is a problem that not only isn't going away, but it's, it's going to get worse. And that what Ginger was doing to intervene, this uh, using technology and, and virtual delivery of care and, and a highly scalable collaborative care model, I felt like it was a great opportunity to build a big business while helping millions of people.
3: Awesome. So it seems like each of you are experiencing, in the context of, uh, of this pandemic, just skyrocketing utilization right now. What's that experience been like? You know, it's interesting. We were seeing such demand prior to
1: the pandemic because of these supply-demand imbalances that I mentioned. And, and our, our whole thesis was, you have to rethink the delivery of mental health care, because you're not going to solve it with more providers. You're not going to solve it with traditional methods of delivery. So how do, you, how do you take all of the technologies we have at our disposal, how do you take evidence-based care and bring all of that together to deliver it in a virtual way? Well, it turns out that that's a pretty good setup for the pandemic because everybody's now virtual. Everybody is accessing things via by an app. And the system's designed to scale as we get, you know, increasing utilization. And so, so far, you know, we're seeing 130% increase in clinical services. We're seeing, you know, 80 to 90% increase in daily actives. We're seeing intensity go up. So we measure our providers' conversations and the intensity of those conversations. That's up 30% over the last six weeks. Our, Our thesis here is that the mental health wave hasn't even really hit yet. Uh, because we're in this mode of people just sort of getting by, Mm -hmm. but as we start to shift into this, this next period of some people are going back to work, some people aren't and, and you're starting to settle into this new normal. We think that's going to be when the real wave hits.
4: Wow.
3: And then Steve, what has your experience been like? I can imagine that a lot of the even recommended behaviors for managing um, uh, exposure risk for COVID might um, trigger or tie into um, uh, some symptoms of the condition. How? What has the experience of NOCD been during this?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's been um, similar to what Russ mentioned. We're we're seeing quite a bit of growth as well. About uh, twofold growth uh, in terms of our sessions, video therapy sessions. That is, and the reason is because people with OCD have these intrusive thoughts, and most of them are harm related. So. The, the cohort of the harm intrusive thoughts that is particularly challenging in this circumstance is the cohort that has the contamination fears. of fear what if I contract COVID-19 myself and get very sick or the harm fears of what if I spread COVID-19 to an at-risk loved one and potentially make them very sick. The response has been for people is, is really, you know, they'll, they'll wash their hands until they bleed to try to prevent themselves from having it or spreading it, or they'll go to the ER and utilize testing resources that, you know, may they may not necessarily need because they're asymptomatic. So what we've done is we've tried to intervene early to help individuals learn how to manage those specific fears. So that way they don't wash their hands until they bleed and they don't go to the ER or outpatient medical center to get tests done. Um, the other challenge has been the stress of the overall environment has caused people that, that don't have COVID fears, um, they've caused them to become severe as well. And, and, you know, in general, stress with OCD often makes symptoms worse. So it's a condition that people have these very severe intrusive thoughts, and to make them go away, they do these different actions called compulsions. So we've seen um, people who have, like, for example, religious obsessions, um, sexual intrusive thoughts, aggressive intrusive thoughts, relationship intrusive thoughts, even feel extreme amounts of distress during this period. And it's simply because, you know, they are, you know, their routines have been um broken right they're they're at home they're not you know going out as much not exercising as much may not be sleeping as much so there's a lot of environmental factors that are causing them to become severe so we've tried to intervene early and we've done a great job and i'm very proud of our team for how they've responded and and um you know each day we're continuing to see more and more people
3: wow it just seems like something that is really must be really great to have for people who need it because it's um, under these circumstances, it seems sort of like a feed-forward mechanism where one thing makes the next thing worse. Margaret, what has your experience been like?
0: It was really interesting. Um, We had planned on launching Nod this fall on college campuses with our partner, Grit Digital Health. And when COVID hit, we made a decision to actually launch it direct-to-consumer, free right away. So a couple of things have happened. We did a sprint and basically did some modifications to the content. You know, one of the things about Nod was that it was really designed to try to get young people connecting in person. And so we had to redesign some of the things in it to be uh, amenable to this particular situation we're in. But the other thing that happened was we launched it, having designed it for and developed it with college students And we've gotten a lot of interest from high school students, from younger populations, as well as from others in the family. And so one of the things we've been doing is working closely with young people in a range of settings, from college students home from campus to high school students who are isolated and feeling lonely at home. We hadn't planned on having any demand right now. So all the demand we're having, several thousand downloads in the first few weeks has been, uh, you know, really exciting development, but also something that's forced us to think about which populations we can effectively serve and how we get this out and available and relevant to as many young people as possible. So it's been- We're inviting
4: adults using it too, the adults associated with the young people?
0: We are. We um, Most of the things we do at Hope Lab, which are targeted at teens and young adults, we find uh, interest from parents. Um, and it's definitely, you know, look, the, the app, brings in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, uh, self-compassion, a whole bunch of evidence-based practices that are really relevant, positive psychology, really relevant for lots of populations. Um, so there there are things that are contextual that we, we designed it to be contextual for campuses and for, for young people in that transition to college phase. But a lot of the lessons in it and the skills that people are learning are really applicable to all of us, and particularly to people who are feeling lonely or isolated or challenged in making the social connections that help them feel buffered from some of the, the mental and emotional health challenges they're facing at these times.
3: Margaret, following up on that, do you? it sounds like one of the things you're saying is that this is a real opportunity for customer discovery, to put it a little formally, where you're having a chance to kind of really see who is almost self-volunteering to, to benefit from this platform. Do you think that that is going to be true after the pandemic subsides? In other words, that you're getting a real reflection of the people who need it, or that the people who are responding now may be ultimately different from your, the people who you're ultimately geared to help out?
0: Oh, it's a great question. And we're, we're thinking hard about that right now you know the the a lot of the tools that we develop at Hope Lab while we start with teens and young adults and we we develop with them so they're really our target user we find that the the skills that are built in the evidence-based practices that are built into the the interventions and tools we build are really relevant to all of us and many of us get to adulthood and haven't had experience learning positive psychology skills learning the the cognitive behavioral therapy skills or mindfulness and so um, this has been a really interesting opportunity for us to, to your point, David, to to figure out who's really attracted to this and how do we think in a very nimble way? Um, and you know we're we're a nonprofit that that tries to act as much like a business as we can. So we're trying to be very nimble right now and understand what we're learning from users. We're a very human-centered, design-focused organization, so we're learning a lot from our users about how this is helping them and how it might uh, be adapted to help other populations.
4: Hey, Russ, you you told me that uh, you're seeing a particular surge in a different kind of user than you typically do, which is men, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? It's interesting. We, first of all, we do a survey, and we do this
1: every year, work workforce attitude survey and so we did the typical renewal of that this year and then the pandemic hit and we said okay we should probably do this again to see the difference between the February data and and what's going on now and so we ran it again and you know we saw we saw some incredible trends one big trend that you're referring to is that men are struggling far more than women during this time we're seeing um, double the incidence rates of uh, men not being able to show up to work because of anxiety and depression. We're seeing them uh, be miss meetings more often than women are. And we're seeing them report severity of symptoms higher than women are. And, you know, it's an interesting, we don't actually know why that's happening. I think we have some theories. One is that women are more used to balancing work life and balancing the the childcare situation than, than men are. So th- this isn't as big a change to them as it is for men. Uh, and and you know, I, I there's there's another thesis is is that they're just more adaptable than men are uh, in general, but um, that one, you know, I think. Are there any
3: specific yeah. examples that stand out of, um, of of patients, you know, not by name, obviously, but that you've experienced that uh, who've experienced this that that you can tell us about? You know, the, the thing that I would say
1: is that we've been surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the amount of people and and I think men in particular that are willing to raise their hand right now and ask for help. That if you, look at, if you look at Ginger's sort of standard body population uh, and usage statistics, it's like 60% female. So it, it's, it's primarily female who have, have used our service. And if you look at what's happening now, there's a real shift taking place where there are more men during this period than there are women using it. And interestingly, so we just launched a client, uh, Robinhood, recently. And we saw one of their male members publicly reach out on LinkedIn and say, I just used Ginger for the first time. It was a great experience. And then the comments, I mean, it went viral on LinkedIn. There hundreds of people liked and commented on this person's disclosure that they went to therapy. I don't think we would have seen that prior to this period of time. I think that... I think that this this period is allowing for some of these stigma-laden situations like therapy, like mental health. People are feeling a little more open about it and and more willing to raise their hand. And so, you know, my hope is that in addition to virtual care just in general, you know, the adoption curve being years advanced by this, the other potential upside of this is this may help reduce stigma in mental health because we're all going through some degree of, uh, you know, mental health need right now.
4: Yeah. Do you think, uh, Steve, I'm curious what you think about that. Will, will you, we see yeah. a reduction in stigma uh, preventing people from outreaching for services, particularly more serious mental illnesses, do you think?
2: Sure. We've seen in our case, people who, who've kind of been in a challenging spot and once COVID hit, then that was kind of the last straw for them where then, you know, they decide, okay, well, I can't do, I can't keep managing day to day with these intrusive thoughts. Now I have additional issues with my finances, with my job. I'm now unemployed. So what do I now do? And so people, you know, because it's been the last straw have, have we've, we've seen have been more likely to seek help from us. Um, and, you know, what we've seen too, though, is because we're helping them in, in their deepest, darkest place, once we get them better, once we treat their underlying driver, their OCD, and their anxiety, depression, stress go away as well, they're more likely than to go back into our patient community and share their experience with others saying, look, I went from being extremely severe down to much better in a span of eight weeks, you can too, right? And so to, um, to Russell, to your point in you know, the the spread of positivity once somebody does get better is, is really important, especially during this time. And I think that is that encourages people who are you know suffering to go and, and to take that first step into treatment, no matter how scary it is. Um, and so we've, you know, in particular, we saw one individual who, um, was a college student in in med school. They were in rural Michigan and they had a severe onset of OCD, um, went to, you know, rock bottom developed depression. They finally had some time because of COVID. So they basically said, okay, well now's the time I need to get treatment. Ended up um, getting treatment, and we were you know, kind of at the point where we weren't sure if we were going to refer them out because the depression was so bad, given they are untreated, OCD, OCD was so severe. And in a matter of just four weeks even, this individual got significantly better. Then was able to self manage on their own for four more weeks after that to the point where their OCD went from, you know, on a diagnostics or on an assessment level from extreme severe down to mild to moderate, and their, their DOS 21 scores went from severe down to mild and dropped about 50%. And so, you know, in just this one instance alone, we saw somebody go from, you know, being at their own rock bottom down, you know, back to perfectly healthy again just from getting that evidence based care. So we're we're really excited about having that type of impact on people's lives, especially during this time, and and um, I think it's showing the impact that um, telehealth can have, especially when people um, didn't really realize it before.
0: And I'll, I'll jump in on this one. You know, one of the things that prompted us to to build Nod and to take the approach we did was these incredible data on loneliness among young people. So, depending on which of the two bigger surveys you look at, either. You know, <sighs> Four percent or seventy-nine percent of college-age people of young people say that they're lonely. And when you think about sort of the stigma of mental health conditions, this admission and this sort of collective uh, acknowledgement that this can be a lonely time and that it can be challenging—that that having fulfilling social connections is not something that happens magically—feels like a, a big step towards reduction of some of the stigma of just beginning to admit that you've got a challenge that you want to try to face. And so I, I think it is interesting when we think about the climate among high school students and college students, that there does seem to be much more willingness to admit that things are not perfect for you and to admit that you're trying to work on them. And I think that is an important step at a really important age towards getting help if you actually do have more significant challenges. So um, I hope, I think we everyone on this podcast today really hopes that a lot of this collective work and this period can help destigmatize needing help and seeking help.
3: So it seems like in terms of the change that's required to have more people get the help they need, one of the things that you're talking about, which is the changes in people's willingness to embrace these approaches right right margaret but another thing are some of the less romantic um uh, sort of um operational issues for example um when you think about, like for telemedicine in particular you know the um and in some of these other approaches there's a real challenge with the lack of reimbursement and how uncomfortable people were on the other side on the physician provider side um, at least temporarily the reimbursement issue has improved are any of you seeing changes on the other side? Are you seeing a, any greater willingness on the part of providers um, to utilize digital approaches that they might have, you know, that they always sort of paid lip service to but never really adopted? Do you think this is, has a chance to drive more longer term change?
2: I think it's really shown, especially providers in our network, how great of an experience it is to work from home and to deliver care to people. Right, I mean, they're starting to see. Okay, well, now I can wake up, you know, have breakfast, and instead of commuting an hour, I can go and and see see uh, patients right from my own house, and the uh, treatment can sometimes be even more effective. Right, so you can. Have you heard
3: that from doctors or from providers or psychologists? Have you heard that?
2: We have. We hear, we hear that every day, um, especially if, so our our therapists that are especially joining us right now, um, or in the last several months, they they've. they've voice that um wow. continuously.
1: Ginger does everything virtually so our providers are, already have discovered the uh the benefits and value of telehealth. I think the thing the change that we're seeing is uh more on the sort of the patient side where we're seeing this uptick in patient volume and you know one of the one of the incredible stats uh, that came out of the survey we did was that about 40% of people in this survey, it's about 1,700 people, about 40% said they've tried some kind of digital telemental health intervention. Mm-hmm. Huh. 60% of those said it was for the first time in the last four weeks. So you just look at that adoption curve change, and it's, it's that you know old adage, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that's, that is what's happening here. People need to try it. They give it a go and they realize
3: just how much, how much easier this is, how much, you know, less friction this is. But how much is that going to be able to stick in the, and I know you're aware of all this in the context of some of the sort of systemic factors that have prevented adoption, just sort of the brutal reality of, you know, of reimbursement issues, of licensure issues in some cases, of, um, of reluctance on the other end to, to, to adopt.
1: Well, historically, before this event, uh, if you look at the stats, when somebody adopts telehealth, you have about a 20% attach rate. So, you know, 20% of the people that try telehealth for the first time, you know they're going to come back. I think in this situation, you're likely to see a higher attach rate because the genie's out of the bottle from the standpoint of reimbursement. I, d- I don't see us going back. I don't see us going back on reimbursement. Once you have the uh, demand and realization that this stuff works, I think it's going to be hard to say, oh, yeah, we're not going to reimburse for telehealth anymore. On the other side of that, I think all of these changes in the world are driven by demand, right? They're driven by patient desire for a certain kind of care. And now that you have so many people who have experienced this, I think that you'll continue to see innovation and change that allows for more and more of it look at Epic
4: announcing that they now have a telehealth yeah, solution. Saw that. Right? It, it's interesting this, it's interesting the rest, because I think in consumer products industry, you know, tech drives demand in the healthcare industry, demand follows the tech uh, in a different kind of way. I mean, it's available, but nobody uses it in, in, in the consumer world, People are lining up, you know, like fall over each other to use new tech. And I think, it'll be interesting to see if it's persistent, this, this, you know, new. Because factor. that's
3: what I was wondering, Lisa, with the, I mean, I think that incentive play such a big role. If people can't get paid for stuff, you know, um, they're not going to use, you know, it, it's going to be it, part What is of the your response. guys
4: view of this? I mean, r- obviously all of the rules about reimbursement have been loosened. Uh, people are getting paid for telehealth the way they're getting paid for um, other types of care delivery, live care delivery. the, Privacy rules have been relaxed. You know, I, you, the whole world of coverage has changed during the COVID situation. How much do you think that will persist, the ability to treat across state lines, et cetera? Or do you think it's going to roll back the way it was and put a dent in what you can do?
0: Well, that sounds like a Manat question. I mean, <laughs> so I'm going I'm to turn it back to you. I think one of the things, I mean, I've mean i worked on telehealth for a very, very long time, probably 20, 25 years. And one of the things that was always fascinating to me was that there was a big philosophical opposition, um, particularly around telemental and behavioral health, from a lot of people who are very paternalistic. It was, this is second-class care. We can't do this, especially for poor people. This isn't rural people. This isn't the right thing to do. And yet, when people experienced virtual or tele behavioral health and mental health care, they often disclosed more, they often liked the experience better. So we've had for a long time, this real divide between the experience of people and this mode of care and the reimbursement landscape and the regulatory landscape around it. And I think what you know, this is a giant experiment that I think never would have happened had or maybe it would have happened 10 years from now, had COVID not hit. And so I think the question you ask is is an amazing question. I, I'm going to throw in a, a quick statistic, and I don't know if this is uh, an interesting one to, for this conversation, but Kaiser Family Foundation's latest poll, end of April, on mm. um, mental health and health showed that 56% of of people polled, said that they had uh, experienced some sort of, through the worry and stress of, of COVID, had experienced some negative effect on their mental health. Interestingly, during the same period, only 3% said that they needed but were unable to get mental health care services. And that was way lower than I would have thought it would be. 16% said they couldn't get medical care for conditions not related to coronavirus. So you know, maybe we are actually seeing with this surge in use of telebehavioral behavioral health a really important narrowing of the gap between unmet need and demand and and people's experience. I don't know if others have thoughts. I'm I'm just trying to work that one out. I think it's a really interesting statistic.
1: I think it is an interesting one. You know, I I think I have a few thoughts. One is, I think this goes back to I don't think we've yet seen the wave on mental health. I think that. We're in a phase of people dealing with the current state of affairs. We're in that adrenaline phase. We're in that um, shift to new normal. I think the mental health wave is coming, and and you know, we 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 sort of test the market, and and we we did 150 calls to therapists out there right now uh, a few weeks ago, and. Out of those 150, we picked three different markets, Seattle, LA, and New York. Out of those 150, 70% never returned our call. 12%, the phone line didn't work. 12% answered the phone and told us they had no availability. Yeah. And then 8% said, I can get you in within the next week. So now... Who knows about the quality of those 8%, right? So you're not even talking about, like, it's just a warm body that'll actually get you on a phone call in within the next week uh, to talk about your issues. That is the state of mental health right now in terms of people getting access to care. So we know there's a massive issue out there in terms of the supply-demand balance. But, ba- you know, back to the... Um, the comment sort of on what's going to happen into the future, you know, the CMS has come out and said, we're not going to go back on reimbursement, right? So Cma has said this, that's not going to change. I, I'm dubious though about state side of things. I think it's very likely, it's already still complicated. Like they've tried to make it simpler in terms of cross-state licensing, but the reality we've seen is it hasn't really helped much and we still need to have people licensed and we have to make sure we figure out uh, that they're properly they're properly set up in each in each state even during this period so i don't mm-hmm. see that
0: changing post uh, yeah. pandemic anytime soon i don't think that's i don't think that's that's where we'll see the change
4: so let me ask you so just it's a little bit of a different vector of conversation but there are literally hundreds and, pro- and i think some count by some counts a thousand behavioral health companies in the digital world now. And I'm wondering about if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the industry as, you, as we think about going back to whatever normal turns out to be. I mean, you guys are experiencing massive in, you know, demand, but can a thousand companies uh, be successful? Is, is this good or bad for you uh, as you think about your future? So I think it
2: depends on what what the companies do like I think you know what, what I've gathered at least there's companies that identify people with different behavioral health conditions there's people that there's companies that manage different populations some manage um, low acuity populations mid acuity populations higher acuity populations so there's a lot of there's a lot of um complexity within the behavioral health market and I think because there's a lot of complexity there are different types of solutions that will work um, what I've seen at least is that you know first and foremost without having a proper diagnosis or understanding as to what someone's going through, it's tough to get them connected to the right form of care. And so, you know, you oftentimes see the one size fits all solution saying that, hey, I can treat anything under the sun. And the problem with that is, you know, if you treat, for example, OCD, the same way you treat panic disorder, that patient's going to get worse and vice versa. So it's how do you create an ecosystem where you identify what someone's going through and then you can offer them the care they need in a, in a you know, really personalized way um, some people who are lower acuity may not need to see a therapist. They may just need to go and, and engage with content or, or use self-help tools or or um, talk to others in the community. Whereas you, if for a condition like OCD, if you don't see a specialized therapist that is trained in exposure response prevention, data show you're going to get much worse. You're most likely going to become suicidal at one point, sadly, and you're also going to be likely to um, become addicted to substances. And so it's just a matter of you know, what does somebody need? And can you identify that? And can you have a, a personalized way to manage it? So I think if those thousands of companies, you know, kind of fit into that ecosystem, you know, you, you could see efficacy for many of them. Um, but, you know, I think there's there's a lot of folks that are trying to, in my opinion, from what I've
4: observed, um, solve the the one-size-fits-all solution. Ross or Margaret, do you have a thought about that?
1: I, I do. I mean, I think, you know, Stephen, in, in a lot of ways, hit it on the head. I, there are a lot of apps out there that are attempting to take pieces of the problem and offer a solution, which I think in one way is great. I think innovation and, and discovering what works and you know, seeing what people like, that's how we, that's how we improve, right? Um, I think on the other side, it's a very confusing landscape. And and even the the statement, there's thousands of mental health solutions, is, is in my mind, kind of uh, part of this confusion. You know, there are very few truly end-to-end mental health systems that you can get care from real people at all different levels of acuity uh, via an online or virtual capacity. And... So, so I think that, that for the from the buyer community, it 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 just means that they have to they have to really do research. They have to understand like who's out there for the kinds of things they're looking to solve for. Um, and you know, from our perspective, we we think of it as let's let's use some of these apps and see where people are adopting to help us figure out some of our product innovation roadmap, to figure out who should we be acquiring to add to our capability stack. So it's almost like a bit of R&D we can do without having to build it ourselves.
3: So building on that question, and this is really for all three of you, what is the most significant thing you think you've learned about your your customers that you didn't know before all of the COVID demand? Why
4: don't you start, Steve, since you were just talking?
2: Oh, wow. So I think you know what we've learned is that there's a real big need to give somebody personalized care, right? That's that, that not only is, for example, 1% of the week. So not only the the sessions face-to-face that happen maybe once a week, but also support between sessions and making sure people can kind of um, get that support when, when no one's around, when they're by themselves. Right. And so we use tech for that. Um, And I think, you know, I think it's what we've shown too is just by our growth is that, if you offer kind of deeper care in in the more severe mental illness category you can really get people better faster and so um i think our our customers are starting to see the outcomes and the patient experience that people are having and so um it's kind of for us it's it's verified you know the the what you know our whole our whole company's thesis
0: i would say um not something we've we've necessarily learned recently but are really seeing um is this that mental health and life are not separate that having mental well-being having being able to actually have positive social connections is something that is part of having a fulfilling life and i think when we try to separate out mental health physical health and your life as if those are three different things it can feel very cognitively dissonant to people users consumers all of us so you know for the last question i think about there are lots out there but we have to be thinking kind of to Russ's point, as we experiment about how we position and help create ways for uh, these tools to be really integrated into people's lives, into their lives as students, into their lives as partners and spouses, into their lives as employees. Um, And I think COVID has been a a, a sort of wake-up call for us to be thinking about how do we do a better job at that? How do we do a better job at that at work? How do we do a better job at school? How do we do a better job at home?
4: Russ, do you have any further thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit
1: earlier about the male female divide. That's a fascinating learning to me. uh, Just how much more men are struggling with this than women right now. Uh, And interestingly, the effects of this are hitting women harder than men in a lot of ways. If if you look at the people on the front lines of the healthcare workforce and and the people that are the caretakers out there and, and the teachers out there, they're predominantly women. And, and so it's an interesting uh, sort of dichotomy we see there. I think the other piece of this that is interesting is just how all-encompassing it is from a mental health spectrum, right? There are, there are financial stresses, there are isolation stresses, there are, um, you know, socialization related to that. There's, there's immense amounts of uncertainty about the future. There are that work-life balance, you know, times 10. Uh, so, so I think this very much is almost like a perfect storm when it comes to mental health and, our advice to people, what, I, what we want to make sure that they're, they're feeling is take a breath, take time off. Uh, we'll actually be launching this month a take time campaign just to help people realize that like we're not taking vacations right now. We should be taking vacations right now. We should be taking days off. We should be getting exercise. We should be getting sleep. Let's make sure we're talking about that both as individuals and as workforce leaders.
4: I take vacations by going to my dining room once in a while, you know, a room that I don't want to go to. Exactly. Um, Last question for all of you. Um, As you think about the landscape, the thousand companies, the the money that's going to telemedicine right now, sort of the only thing in digital uh, health that's being invested in at this moment in a material way. Um, What is the one, you know, observed underserved need, the thing that nobody's really doing yet in behavioral health, Uh, and telemedicine or the intersection thereof that you wish somebody would do or start or serve?
2: You know, I think from our perspective, um, having a really strong way of identifying what someone's going through. And, you know, I know, for example, people, you know, in in our case, you know, people with OCD are very unlikely to actually tell their provider their thoughts that they're having because they're so embarrassed by them. And there's so much shame associated with their symptoms. So there's a better way, to identify the core issue of what someone's going through that would be incredibly helpful largely because if you can identify what they're going through then you could you could solve the problem you can treat them and get them better and so um, oftentimes people will say oh i have anxiety i have depression without really understanding well why why are you having anxiety why are you having depression um and you know sometimes it, it could be a variety of different factors um it, yeah, so that's that's what we would our team would most likely say is, look, we want to make sure we can identify what someone's going through.
0: Margaret? I would love to see someone develop a more effective way to integrate some time with licensed providers, with higher level providers, with community and peer supports, and do that really effectively. Because I think one of the challenges we're going to have, apropos of Russ's projections, that this is only the very beginning of this, is a huge... Uh, supply-demand mismatch. If we just think about the current um, trying to match a person with a licensed provider problem, particularly for underserved populations, so a more effective way to um, to bring together the power of peer support and community supports with some oversight by licensed providers where that's needed.
4: Mm-hmm. Russ, what about you?
1: Well, you're, you're Lisa. You're, you're kind of. Asking me to divulge our product roadmap a little bit. (laughs) If we think it should be done, we're going to do it.
3: Uh, Yeah, no, I I mean... That's like to anticipate an idea is to have an idea, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly. Uh, But what I will say is one of the things we see out there that in the service of really supplying the supply-demand imbalance in the behavioral health space, we believe far more data needs to be collected and given To providers as part of providing care. So the the state of the art today, or or, or the state of the industry today, I should say, is not much is measured, not much is personalized based on those measurements. And Ginger wants to play a, a role in not only collecting that data, but making it available to all providers to do a more effective, personalized job in
4: providing high quality mental health care. That's great. Well, thank you all so much for being on the show today. It's, it's really been a fascinating conversation. And I hope it, it, those who listen to it um, use it as an opportunity to, to get the help they may have not gotten if they need it. Um, and that your message spreads widely. We certainly can use a lot more uh, help out there for people.
0: Thank you. Thanks thank for you having me. Thank you
1: very much. Yeah, I completely agree. Thanks so much for having all of us.
4: Take care, guys. I really enjoyed that show. I really liked hearing about what they're doing. And I think back to my own, you know, past history as an entrepreneur in the, in the mental health area and how much having some of these telebehavioral health capabilities would have made a difference back then and, and how it's finally, finally being allowed to make a difference now.
3: Yeah, you know, I thought the technology part was interesting, but I actually thought that the idea of mental health as being something that's becoming increased, at least, maybe increasingly destigmatized, and yeah. in the type of thing that's recognized that the comment that was made about, you know, as an integral part of uh, of life and um, you know, sort of work life balance—and but it wasn't just a work life balance; it was that that's sort of an important consideration, sort of at all times, that under these unique circumstances people are uniquely being allowed to acknowledge yeah and i thought that was a really important point
4: i agree with you it really is
3: so please remember to rate us on itunes and leave a comment help others discover the show you can follow
4: david's column astounding health tech at the timmerman report and read his wonderful book reviews in the wall
3: street journal well thank you lisa and you can follow the always scintillating ever captivating lisa soon in adventure We're
4: grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full service law firm and a broad-based strategic business policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare
3: system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine in Northern California. Stay safe. Wear your masks.